slash and cast. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. In this episode, I chat with stage and screen actor James Marsters about his days of high school hell raising, the French Revolution, Macbeth, theater, being expelled from Juilliard, Buffy, and more. Also, if you're listening to this and you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. It helps us show up on searches and whatnot. Also, for any Buffy fans out there listening to this, I will have an upcoming recording this holiday season with Miss Juliet Landau, who you'll all know as Drusilla. So if you do have any questions for Miss Landau, please submit them to the socials and I'll pick the best ones. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Boils and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Just to get us started here, so we have a platform to jump off of, take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? Well, I was a Ford maker, definitely. I love making forts and making circuses. I would talk my younger brother into making a circus so we could make some money. We'd always like try to make this circus and in the backyard, you know, and then like three people show up. And I just, I never learned my lesson. I always thought I could make a better circus. I remember I, we sent away one time for like a, get, build a show in your backyard and make money off your friends. And that was my final hurrah. I was like, if this doesn't look like I spent 20 bucks on this thing. Uh, <laughs> and that didn't work either. <laughs> what kind of stuff were you doing so, in the circus? You like you could juggle, you could ring toss. This is a little while ago. So I don't know, we, we didn't have any lion tame. <laughs> If we had a line, probably could have sold tickets, but they didn't include that in the box. I did read books, actually. I actually read the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> My mom got one. Hey. This is way back in the day before the internet, but you could find out about stuff in the Encyclopedia Britannica. I like to read histories. For young readers, there was like the story of Leif Erikson, you know, the Viking who discovered America before the Portuguese did. I remember that one specifically. I think because I, I read the whole book thinking that the, the word I was reading was Island. And I remember f- <laughs> finishing the book and being like, oh, it's island. It's just spelled weird. But I read a lot of those. I think I got a, I got some kind of hand on some some history anyway by reading that. I remember getting really into Lord of the Rings when I was oh, yeah. 12, 13 years old. I wanted to like, I remember talking to my dad, who was a Methodist minister, going, I just want a sword and I want to fight evil. Like, I want to cut evil's head off. I want to take my sword and disembowel evil. And and my dad was kind of chuckling, going, well, that's not 
exactly how we fight evil in the real world. But okay. <laughs> it know, works. Your heart's in the right place. <laughs> I remember I read Fahrenheit 451. Mm, very relevant was, uh, now these days, right? Yeah, right. I, I fell into a depression, man. I got agoraphobic. I, I, I could not leave. It was in the summer, and about half the summer, I couldn't leave the house. I got so freaked out, and I had to wow. put the book down. I never finished it. It really had an effect on me. But yeah, big is it that that it's a good book to be reading now. Yeah, and I've continued to read. And Troublemaker, yeah. In my freshman year of high school, I went to live with my dad in Marin County. And it's like a bunch of rich white folks up there, you know. We would go down to the Denny's and we would have blood packs. We would go up to the big window right next to someone having dinner and we would pretend to have a stabbing right right like a foot from their face. <laughs> and wait till the cops got called. And then we would run the cops up into the hills of Marin, lots of winding roads up there, and they would never be able to catch us. And that was a lot of fun. I remember one time we ran up against an illegal marijuana farm and we were really excited. We're like trucking down this hill and we're really excited we found this farm. But then we hear this wooden door open up and the attack dogs came out and they just chased us shit. They, did, <laughs> they just chased us up this hill and it was just pure terror. None of us, we didn't get caught, but we would have got really severely mauled by the dogs if we had gotten caught. Didn't get away with any product, did you? No, we didn't have time for that. Man. We were just like, hey, a marijuana field. Oh, no, shit. Half in a second, man. They were ready for us. I remember one time when I was like a junior in high school, the principal, like I hung out with a lot of people that were smarter than me. And they've gone on to be doctors and lawyers and stuff. The, the principal put out this thing like no more graffiti in the high school. If we catch anyone doing graffiti, you know, we're going to step down on it. Beware. And so we found this wall that was easily painted over. You can tell it had been painted over many times, so it wasn't a big deal of graffiti on it. And it was right near the principal's window. We painted carefully a whole paragraph by Henry David Thoreau on the importance of education. <laughs> and, and he called us into his office and he was like, okay, First of all, I know it's you guys. It's, it can't be anybody else. Would you please give me a break? Okay, it's hilarious. I admit it. It's a good gag, but you're killing me. I'm trying to keep care of the school. If you don't mind, oh, <laughs> please hilarious. stop. You guys had a reputation. Yeah. So, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, was, I guess I'm all three in some way. A few minutes ago, you said your uh, dad was a minister. Were you very religious growing up? Were you active in the church? Was that something a lot of your time was put into? I was religious. I don't know that I'm religious now. I'm spiritual at this point in my life. I don't really, I don't really know that it is important how one does it. As long as some, as long as I am reaching up, trying to touch something that I don't fully understand, but is love, I guess. Whether that's Judaism or Islam or Christianity or Buddhism or whatever, I think it's kind of all the same. They all talk about the same things. But yeah, but, some, but I grew up in a Methodist church and my dad was real cool about it i remember one time i think i was i don't know i might have been 20 years old and i sat down with him over chinese food and i said you know i got to tell you i disagree with you politically religiously i disagree with you about it, almost everything just so you know and he's like okay that's fine let's have left <laughs> dinner you know like you're gonna go your own way it's all right that's healthy uh, so yeah very yeah. much so can you have a eureka moment you can point into where your interest in the arts sort of arose maybe a movie that you saw or something along those lines couple of them. I started acting when I was in the fourth grade. I played Eeyore 
and I was really into it. I wanted to get the pathos of Ethor, Eeyore, rather. I really took it really seriously. <laughs> I wish I could have seen the performance. It'd be hilarious. This kid trying to treat Eeyore as Hamlet, you know. But <laughs> And then I didn't do any in the fifth grade. In the sixth grade, I did a couple of musicals at the Mini Youth Theater in Modesto, California. And one of them was... The Me That Nobody Knows, which is actually kind of an interesting play to come off Broadway. And it was a bunch of monologues that were written by kids in poor neighborhoods in big cities. And then professional Broadway songwriters would write songs based on that monologue. And it was kind of a hit at the time back in the 70s. But I remember it as being an interesting play. But anyway, we did it in Modesto. So at that point, we were a bunch of white kids Trying to, I don't know, fuck. But we tried. And uh, I was singing a, um, singing a song called Light Sings All Over the World. And I was down on the apron of the stage and I was just belting out to the audience. And I just had this sense that we were all together in the same room. The cast, me, the cast, the audience, we were all one grouping. And we were all trying to have a really good night together. And we were all kind of supporting each other. I could tell that the audience wanted me to do well. And I think the song was kind of working, but we were all being we were all being supportive of each other more more than anything else. And there was a sense of community, you know, for that evening. And I just got bit real early. And then later, I remember watching Deer Hunter. John Savage was this actor. He had the scene with Robert De Niro in there, and they're like, Deer Hunter's about the Vietnam War, and they're back in Vietnam. They've been captured by the Viet Cong, and they're they're submerged in water, and they're being forced to play Russian roulette and see which one's going to blow their brains out first. And if they don't do it, they're going to get shot. De Niro's like, just do, just pull the trigger, Bobby. Just pull the trigger. We got to do it. And Bobby's like, I can't fucking do it. Oh, my God. He has a mental breakdown on camera. It's a really, it's a famously intense scene. And I just remember thinking, that is so different than what I'm doing on stage. That's a whole different animal. Uh, getting that raw. You can't do that on stage. Stage is very controlled. It's planned out. And that's a whole different thing. I have no idea how John Savage got there or did that, but man, I would like to learn how to do that. I know you're a big fan of musicals. You've said before in previous interviews that you are. Do you have a preference when it comes to musicals versus traditional stage? The thing is, is that the big theater in my hometown, Modesto, was called the, the Modesto Youth Theater. And it was actually very professional, really good sets. Paul Tischer, who I think is still the artistic director over there, instilled in me a sense of professionalism that has stood, you know, I've taken that my whole life. Show up on time, know your damn lines, act like you want the job, put your back into it, man. If not, we can get somebody else to do this, you know. So I owe a lot to Paul. But the truth is we were doing like Carousel, Bye Bye Birdie, Showboat and stuff like that. So I learned an acting style that was like, oh, waka, waka, waka. I remember taking a summer training program at ACT in San Francisco, which is like a serious act, you know, theater acting thing. I don't know, man, I think I was 16 or whatever. And I come in there with my acting style and all of these San Francisco, like Shakespearean actors, they just looked at me like, who let the leper in? Like, oh, no. what the fuck? Like, what are you doing, you know? Because I'm applying this acting to serious drama scripts. Yes. You know, and that doesn't work at all. I had to kind of climb out of that hole for quite a few years and get rid of that other acting style. So for a long time, I was like, ah, musicals, I've grown past that. There's shit, you know. <laughs> I, for a long time, I had kind of a chip on my shoulder about those old time musicals. But then I saw a production of Les Miserables 
which is about the French Revolution and desperate poverty that people were undergoing that led them to want to violently overthrow their government. And I just remember being really moved by that and really, really thinking that musicals have grown up. You know, they're talking about stuff I care about. And so my mind has been open to musicals. But most of my experience with music was really guitar. Mm. I started playing in bars when I was about 13. Great way to get in a bar when you're 13, frankly. I'll say. <laughs> get paid too? Uh, right? And back, no. I oh, okay. Enough to get paid. But then let me play. I, I would warm up for the people who got paid. <laughs> And back then, I was only playing James Taylor. I was really snooty about it. He was the best, and everyone else was second rate. And so I would do a set of James Taylor. And now, you know, James Taylor is actually pretty good. You know, I, I was a little bit right. I wouldn't do any, like, eagles. Fuck them. I'm doing James Taylor. <laughs> and then I went to acting school for college, and my guitar kind of became a private thing more than a public thing. I was also right. in a band. I was kind of in a band in high school. I would play with them some. I wasn't, like, really in the band. They were pretty good. They modeled themselves after The Clash. And they were actually pretty good. They were called the Vandals. And I played with them a few times. And uh, they were my friends. But it wasn't until I got on Buffy. That someone found out that they, they asked me in an interview, like, do you play any musical instruments? So I told them, yeah, I play guitar. I was playing in bars when I was 13, stuff like that. And that interview went out. And someone who booked a club, you know, read it and put two and two together and said, wow, if we can get that guy on our stage, we'd probably sell a lot of tickets because Buffy's pretty hot right now. Does it probably matter if he's any good? <laughs> we'll make money. So they invited me and I was like, well, screw it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. And I put a set together and I sucked. <laughs> and I knew that I sucked. I hadn't been playing in front of an audience in a long time. It takes a little bit to, to be worth being stared at playing music for an hour at a time, you know? It's different than pulling out a guitar at a party when everyone's high. Yeah. Uh, so I was bad. And, but I, I kept thinking, well, people are enjoying themselves anyway. I'm enjoying myself. It's not that bad. And I'll keep doing it and I'll get better. I'll keep rehearsing. I'll keep playing in front of people and I'll slowly get better. It was a slog. And I was getting booked into bigger and bigger venues in Los Angeles quicker than I was getting better. And I knew it. And I was playing the Key Club, which is one of the biggest clubs for live music in Los Angeles. And a massive audience. And I'm just like, this is going to kind of suck. But okay. <laughs> and someone came backstage and the person goes, by the way, Pink is in the audience. She's really excited to hear you. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Tell her to leave. Couldn't you wait a year? <laughs> <laughs> And sure enough, man, by the end of the set, Tink was nowhere to be seen. She ran screaming, I imagine. I got better. I drove my neighbors crazy. I wanted to practice with a mic. Because it's different singing with a mic than live, you know, without yeah. one. They call it my karaoke machine. But I kept doing it. And then I met another musician and started a band. And at that point, I had to work a lot harder at it and mm. got better. And at this point, a professional musician said, no, you know what? You're a serviceable rhythm guitarist, man. You know, like, I'd play with you. you know? yeah. And what he, was what he was saying is, I probably wouldn't brag about you, but you wouldn't embarrass me. Like, you're you know, on a professional level. You're serviceable, you know? And I'll take that. Yeah, exactly, you know? from a professional. Like, Fuck yeah. Yeah, I'm like, all right. That's good enough. If De Niro tells you that you're all right at acting, you'll take that, you know? <laughs> yeah, <I'll> take <laughs> I haven't heard that from him, but yeah. <laughs> So I was, you just mentioned James Taylor. What else are you throwing on the record player back in the day? Oh, wow. You know, I was really lucky. I had a stepfather who had an amazing record collection and an amazing record player. Huge woofers, man. Just beautiful speakers, like five foot tall speakers. Beautiful mm. setup. Jesus, man. Edgar Winter, Stones, Beatles, everything in between. Joni Mitchell, Stevie Wonder, 
all of the seventies music. I mean, we could right. just spend the rest of the interview <laughs> talking about all the records that that guy had. And I remember, like, you know how kids want to have their own music? They want to have that music that the parents go, eh, that sucks. <laughs> I couldn't do it. This guy had everything. Putting music in front of him, and, and he kept going like, that rocks. That's amazing. <laughs> Fuck. It doesn't work. And the closest I got was I played him Bob Marley, and he was like, well, that's really good, but all the, so all the songs sound the same. I was like, okay, that's good enough. There's something. <laughs> that's my music. Yeah, that's something. He didn't get it. <laughs> Bob Marley was the first CD I bought with my own money. Oh, right on. Yeah. Which one? Exodus? It was a best of CD. Yeah, that was my first one. So I got to ask, you got expelled from Juilliard. Is there a story behind that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was too honest. Overarchingly, it just wasn't the program for me. That's, I mean, that's really probably the truth. I just, I didn't, ex they have a way of, of teaching acting, which is really very, very technical and the character builds from the outside in. So the first thing you do is like, how does my character walk? Or how does he use his lips and shit like that? And, and I always wanted to build from the inside out. And so it just wasn't a good fit overarchingly, but I didn't help myself in my freshman year of college there. We were doing what was called the Discovery Play, which is the very first play that you ever do at Juilliard. And it's only performed in front of the staff of Juilliard. They don't even let the other students look at it, and certainly not the public. And we were doing Troilus and Cressida, which is not one of Shakespeare's better plays. I mean, it's Shakespeare, so it's still amazingly good, right. but it's not his best play. It's a little problematic. And I had come off of a, of a two-year program out of high school in Santa Maria, California, with a really good theater, one of the best in the West Coast, where you get a bunch of students to help build a set and play extras and sword carriers but you get to watch really amazing actors go from first rehearsal to last performance and you learn a lot and it's, it's an apprenticeship basically and so i was kind of used to that but i was thinking i'm going to juilliard it's going to be much better than what we got on the west coast and i, I get to juilliard we're doing this discovery play and marion seldes who is one of the best actors in america and an amazingly wonderful woman who's passed away was directing and as good as she is as a actor, that's how bad she is as a director. She was horrible. <laughs> she was very loving. She didn't make any choices. She didn't like block the play. She didn't, she didn't talk about how each scene fits into the larger structure and what kind of choices should be made. None of it. She just let us kind of experiment, experiment, experiment. And she just kept saying, you go, my birds, you go. You're wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And we are three days from performance and the play sucks <laughs> it is humiliatingly bad it is unwatchable it's so bad i'm just i can i couldn't figure it out why does this suck so bad and i thought maybe it's a test of some kind i mean this is juilliard they can make it good if they wanted to maybe we're supposed to figure something out so i started with the discovery play okay why is it called the discovery play and i started asking people in you know staff and no one knew they were like, I don't know why it's called the Discovery Play. And I thought, okay, so they're not going to tell. And I thought, okay, well, i got to figure this out. Maybe it's not our discovery. Maybe it's not that we're discovering anything. Maybe it, they're going to discover something about us. And maybe what they want to discover is if, if left to our own devices, not given any help or direction, are we the kind of class that's going to try to tell a story? Or are we just going to jerk off for four weeks and then belch that out into, a, into an audience? And I said, well, this class has me, and I'm going to say something. 
And I stood up at the end of rehearsal. We were three days away from performance. I said, okay, guys, this is the most embarrassing play I have ever been in. I did musicals in my little hometown that were 20 times better than this. This is inexcusable. We are going to have human beings staring at us for three hours. We're going to take three hours of their life from them. And they're we're going to waste that time. And they are not going to be able to forgive us on a human level. We have got to start making choices and try to tell this story. Well, I was wrong. And that's not what they were looking for anyone to do. I thought that, that I was doing what they were hoping someone would do. And they, they, I was doing exactly the opposite. And Marion was trying her best. And frankly, that was the best direction they could give us. When you think about it, it's hard to get a good director to come direct a bunch of first-year students yeah. for a play that no one's going to see anyway. So they, they probably, you know, who's, who wants to direct this girl? Nobody wants to do We'll get Marion to do it. She's nice kind of thing. She's not a director. So I was labeled the opinionated kid who knew better than everybody else, and they, they just stepped on me from, from the next day. I had a teacher in my face screaming at me about how I knew nothing, and they didn't let the boot off the neck for two years, and then they kicked me out. Uh, yeah <laughs> especially one teacher one teacher was especially but she was known for being a sadist anyway so. in Juilliard's defense I've been back I've seen the new way that they're doing things and it's a really good program now but it wasn't back it's kind of famous for not a, not a being a good program at the time that I went right. I'm sure the audience appreciated you standing up <laughs> <laughs> No, the audience was the staff. Oh, like, yeah, you're right, this, you're right, you're right, you're right. This uprightness, this this boy, who does he think he is criticizing us? Fuck you. Their style that you're talking about sort of starting externally, is that uncommon? Is that counterintuitive to what most other places teach? It's very British, and it works. You can defend that. The problem really w was not that. The problem really was that... They thought that the, what, what you had to do is rip away everything that the student thinks they know about acting, everything they think they know about themselves, and then rebuild the shattered remains of humanity in the image of Juilliard and build it back up. And my problem was that I had already done a lot of plays. I had had really good training. I'd already done about 30 or 40 plays, and I, I had a good foundation already didn't really want them to rip me down. I really thought I knew how to make it work. And frankly, I kind of did. The thing is, is that at its core, whether it's in front of an audience or a lens, acting is being private in public. That's the trick. Like people watching is really interesting. You know, you just go to the beach and watch people. It's very interesting. But it's only so interesting because the people you're watching, they know they're out in public. So they're not, they're kind of editing them themselves a yeah. little bit. What's way more interesting is doing a peeping Tom thing where you're looking at people when they think they're in private. Mm -hmm. And that's when they let their freak out. <laughs> that's when they get really interesting. The thing about peeping Tom is it's illegal. And yeah, unfortunately, we can't does do it. I don't do that either, <laughs> but it would be fascinating. And the closest most of us get is watching actors work who, who, who have this ability to let their freak out while they're being stared at. It's a kind of a hard thing to do because I mean, when we're predators, right? So we have forward facing eyes and whenever predators are staring at another animal, it's when they're about to eat that animal. So there's a very honest voice in me when I have a bunch of eyes on me, forward face, like if it was all cows in the audience, I wouldn't care, <laughs> wouldn't make me nervous, but it's forward facing eye. Everyone's staring at me. There's a fight flight thing going on. 
and to ask myself, don't fight, don't flee, and don't protect yourself. Don't put up a false face. Don't give the audience what you think is safe to give them. Don't try to be cooler than you are or more interesting than you are. Just let them see your freaky self. In film, I think there's only, I can only really think of five to 10 actors who can really do this fully in the world. But those who can, when I watch them, I am just kind of proud to be a human being. They are revealing how beautiful and interesting we all really are. It's a huge gift that a really great actor gives the audience to be able to do a Keeping Tom thing, you know. But it takes a lot of courage. It takes a, a rock-solid belief that I am good enough, as I am, to be stared at. I don't have to cover it up with anything. I can just let them see me for real. And that takes a lot of courage. And so what Juilliard was doing is ripping away that courage, ripping away that self-esteem. And they don't do that anymore. Thank God, because it doesn't work. I was doing a play at the Goodman Theater, which is like the biggest theater in Chicago. And the director comes up to me and he goes, I just found out you were from Juilliard. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, Jesus, I never would have hired you had I known you were from Juilliard. I've, I've worked for some Juilliard actors. They're like a bunch of like abused children who are expecting to get hit. And they can't have fun. And I was like, well, I got kicked out. He's like, oh, oh, well, that's fine then. Uh, now I understand. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> the only good people coming out of Juilliard are the ones who got kicked out anyway. You and Robin Williams. Okay, good. Far oh, out. yeah, that's a good list. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that, was kind of the, that was kind of the thing that the people that work coming out of Juilliard really consistently are the ones who get kicked out. But, but again, I just have to state that it really has changed. It's not the Juilliard of today. So yeah. nobody out there write Juilliard any nasty letters. If you can go back in time, fucking knock, <laughs> knock yourselves out. <laughs> So yeah. you said that Macbeth is one of your favorite plays. Why do you think yeah. that is? It is a very mature and ahead of its time rumination on the cost of evil on the perpetrator. We all know that the victim suffers, but Shakespeare really zeroes in on, on the cost to the perpetrator. In a different way, Dr. Martin Luther King talked about this in his speech. He talked about the cost of racism on the racist, the stunting effect that it has to, to have to hold that kind of lie, that viewpoint that is untrue, and to have to back that up and rationalize it. You have to kind of stunt your own your own self. Great play by Athel Fugard about this, called Master Harold and the Boys as well. It's a South African playwright. He was writing in the 70s when apartheid was still uh, very much in play. It's always interesting to look at the world that Shakespeare was living through when he writes a play. Like Romeo and Juliet is not about love. It's about love getting stabbed in the heart. It's actually a really sad play. It's because the rapier had just been invented. They were just able to fold metal to make a sword, essentially a long needle. The metallurgy was so good that you could do that. And at that point, it became a fairly cheap thing to buy. You could get through someone's armor with that very easily. And it became a fashion statement because it wasn't too expensive and everyone was wearing it as an ornament. And about a third of the recorded deaths, like a third of the gentry died or the middle class died in a few years in Europe. It was a bloodbath. And so Shakespeare wrote that play. The thing about Macbeth is the uh, gunpowder plot. What's that movie? It was called the Guy Fawkes Rebellion. And we all know the Guy Fawkes mask because it's used now, Anonymous uses it yeah. as their logo. But what happened back in England was England had gone 
Protestant. It had broken away from the Catholic Church. And we don't have to go into why. It's a whole <laughs> discussion. But it's all about, well, uh, Henry VIII wanted to get laid, basically, when Mary knew hottie. The Pope wouldn't let him do it, so he's like, F you, I'm going to start my own church, you know? So anyway. There we go. Brief history lesson. Um, yeah, brief history lesson. So they were kind of really at odds with the Catholic Church, which basically had the rest of Europe. So it was all of Europe is Catholic, and there's, there's England, the island of England, going, fuck you, I'm not going to do it. So they were kind of a, a low-grade war. The king was going to speak to Parliament, and so all of his family was going to be there to watch him speak to Parliament, and they, the Catholics put a bunch of gunpowder underneath the, the parliament floor and we're going to light it off when the king started talking and they were going to be able to decapitate the entire English government in one fell swoop. They had a mass the night before they were going to do this to pray to God that it would work, but it was found out and it didn't work. And whereas in England, if you were Catholic before this happened, it was pretty dicey for you. But after this happened, they were pulling people out of their houses and drawing and quartering them in the streets. People were get, just getting murdered just by a whisper of being Catholic. And this mass that they had the night before they tried to blow this thing up, the Protestant England thought of that as a black mass. You're playing mm -hmm. to the devil because you're... So Shakespeare, we think was a Catholic, a bisexual Catholic. And so he writes this play, Macbeth, where Macbeth does everything that the Catholics did, but twice as bad. He not only plots to kill the king, he does it. Yeah. He doesn't do it out in the open, he does it when the king's asleep. And in his king comes to visit him in his own home, Macbeth waits till he's asleep, and then stabs him to death while he's sleeping. He not only prays to the devil, he goes. He gets in league with the devil, and he meets the devil and says, come on, let's party, let's work together, let's go, go, go. He brings the whole country to ruin. And yet, Macbeth, the whole way through until the middle of the fifth act, is a human being. He's not a devil. The, the horror of Macbeth is that he's more like you and me than we would like to admit. He is ambitious. That's why he kills the king. He has ambition. And who of us doesn't have that? And so... Shakespeare is saying, look, man, when you see somebody do a monstrous thing, don't make the mistake of saying they're a monster and they're nothing like me. The truth is they're a lot more like you than you think. And if you went through the things that person went through, you might do the same things that they're doing. Don't distance yourself like that. You make it too safe for yourself when you do that. And just going back to the beginning of it, it's also a rumination on the cost of evil. Macbeth can't sleep anymore. He loses a really good marriage. Like they don't divorce because well, way back when, but they lose, they go, they grow apart. Right. His wife goes crazy and she kills herself. But he's so dead inside. He's committed so many horrible murders that he can't feel it when his wife dies. He doesn't even care about it anymore. And that's when we realize he's a completely lost soul. Shakespeare knew something that we only recently put together, which is that if, if you're doing horrible things that you... You're really shocked by your own behavior and you're recoiling from your own self. You have to cut off part of your own personality to do that thing, especially if you want to do it again and again and again. And people who keep doing heinous things get to a point where they feel dead inside and they can't feel anything anymore. And we know that now psychologically, but Shakespeare talked about it too way back when. Well said. I'm going to go read Macbeth after we get through talking here. How did the transition from stage to screen happen for you? I was up in Seattle. I just finished producing theater. I was sleeping in the back of a theater in Pioneer Square with my then wife, and we had a child. 
I read an article that said that a man's brain rewires when he has his first, when he sees his firstborn child. His impulse control gets better. His ability to look downfield and plan for the future gets better. A lot of things really come online for a male when they see their firstborn child. So I experienced this. I was watching my son get wiped off, the blood get wiped off from the birth, and I heard this voice in my head. It sounded like the voice of God, man. It was like, go to Los Angeles, whore yourself out. You decided to be a poor theater actor, but this little human did not make that choice. Daddy, go make money if you can. And so I came down to Los Angeles and I very luckily had a friend back from the Modesto Youth Theater who had gone on to be a pretty darn successful casting director, he still is. And I'd called him up in Seattle and asked for help getting an agent. And he said, yeah, man, for you, yeah, you're really good. So I'll, I'll help you get it. And he got me a pretty decent agent. And I came down here. And I remember having having a conversation with my uh, this agent and, and saying, look, man, I'm not here to prove myself as an actor. I don't care about statues and awards and Oscars and all that crap. I am here to make money. <laughs> I, need, I need diaper money. I need doctor money. I need college money. That's why I'm here. And she's like, oh, we're going to have a really good time together. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I got sent the audition for Buffy, and I, and I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's <laughs> terrible. I saw the movie. That was so cheesy. I don't want to audition. She, and she's like, well, James, it's different. It's a TV show. The writer is in charge now, and it's kind of, it's the critics are going off about it. And just watch it. It's on tonight. It's on in a half an hour. Why don't you watch it and call me back after you watch it and see if you want to audition. I watched 15 minutes, and I got right back on the phone. I was like, this is amazing. Oh, my God. Get me on this show. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I went to audition and my life changed. The rest is history, as they say. You know very little about Spike going into the audition. What was your what was your mindset of how you're gonna tackle him going into that very first audition? Yeah. I only had one scene. They were I was given the uh, the scene where he comes out with Drusilla and murders the kid. It's kind of the first big scene of when you meet Spike. You were there if every vampire who said he was at the crucifixion was actually there within like Woodstock. It was that scene. And so when I got cast, there was only three days before filming started. I found out later that they'd been looking for someone to play Spike, but they hadn't found him. They were looking for months. They must have said, you know, scrape the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Just call in people that normally wouldn't be seen. We've got to find someone. And they found me at the bottom of the barrel. So time was really short. I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I took Malcolm McDowell's walk when he was in a movie called Cat People, Paul Schroeder movie, where he played kind of a, a man who was a mystical cat at the same time. Really weird film if you've never seen it. I've never seen pretty, it. I'm a, I love Malcolm pretty, McDowell. Pretty cool movie, actually, with Nastasia Kinski. Ooh, very, 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 sec uh, very sensual uh, film. Very silly, but unsettling film. But anyway, he had a he had a really good predatory walk that I stole. And then I also I loved how Rudger Hauer in the scene in Blade Runner, he was talking to his minion, but his minion was taller than him, and yet he commanded that. It was so apparent who was in control even though he was looking up 
which normally is a weakened position. Right. I just remember being really impressed by how he approached that scene. The first scene I shot, I started talking with my minion, and I, he, my minion was tall. I remember being like, okay, time for Rudger Hauer, you know, and, <laughs> uh, use that. So I, I was kind of grasping at anything I could rip off in the beginning to try to get the first episode done. Really, when a script is really good, it inspires me. It tells me what it wants in a way. So it was, you know, if it had been a bad script, it would have, it would have been a lot harder to make something happen. But since it was really just following what the script was asking for. So at what point along the uh, Buffy journey did you realize, you know, holy shit, this is insane. People love Spike. Buffy's huge. I had a sense right away that it was working apart from audience reaction just we we shot one scene and i was like oh baby i know how to drive this car there are parts that may take you a few days or weeks to kind of get your hands around and kind of, oh there's the clutch oh i can see i can see how to get this around the corner so to speak with with spike it was immediate i was like oh i can fly with this and so that came immediately there's a great picture of me as spike it's one of the more famous ones and i've got this kind of Mona Lisa grin on my face and I always look at that and I'm like that is the picture of a daddy who's no longer poor <laughs> yeah. that's what that grin is you know but I, I we were so busy making it and this is before the internet had really taken off it was a critical hit that had a small but loyal following when I got on it and that's another way to say this is a good show that's about to be canceled <laughs> yeah and that's what it was you know but it was the scripts were just freaking phenomenal and I was having the time of my life and they were paying me more than I ever thought and my whole thing was I was told that I was going to die in five to ten episodes and so in my brain I was like okay I want ten <laughs> right you know, I need ten I need, you know I need all the money I get here and so I the, in the beginning I you know success or failure was just am I going to survive after five episodes and I did there came a point where I could tell that they had changed their plan which was the original plan for the season was that Angel and Buffy sleep together. Angel goes evil, kills me, and takes up with Drusilla so that Buffy's heart can get broken. So I was basically just Angel's first victim. That was my place in the story. Uh, and they only built me up to be really cool so that when Angel killed me, then he would become the big bad. And then it got to the point in filming, and you know, I, I, w I knew that I'd survived past five, but then the plot was playing out and I could tell, like, I think this would be the time when Angel should be killing me, and he didn't. And I was like, well, that's cool. Cool. Okay. Okay, they changed their mind. All right. Um, maybe there's more here. Maybe I'm, I'm going to have a job here. I filmed 10, and then that was the end of the, you know, we did 22 episodes, so I wasn't in every episode that season. But I, I fulfilled, and I got my 10 episodes. And then I, you know, drove off, kidnapped Drusilla, and uh, drove off into the sunset. And that was the end. There was no more talk of doing any more. No one said, well, we're going to have you back or anything. And the next season, I remember thinking, try to do the show without Spike. Yeah. Get like, try it. <laughs> and then I, I tuned in in the beginning of season three, and I saw Faith, and I was like, oh, shit. Oh, they don't need me at all. Damn it. They're doing just fine without Spike. And they had me in for one episode in season three, and again, that was going to be it. And I thought, well, maybe they'll have me back one or twi once or twice if the show lasts long enough to... That's probably the end of the real money. And then at the end of season three was when they spun Angel off to its own series. Yeah. And they took Cordelia with them. And Buffy lost the character 
that said, Buffy, you're stupid. We're all going to die. <laughs> they didn't have that anymore. And they needed, they needed a character to fill that hole. And I think it was Sarah that suggested that it be Spike. And so the only reason they, that I became a regular was that they needed a new Cordelia. So I was a new Cordelia. Okay. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned Cordelia because uh, you and Charisma Carpenter also showed up in another favorite show of mine, Supernatural. (laughs) Yeah. I was surprised to see you guys pop up in that episode. Did they approach you as a as a team? Was that a we're just going to bring these two in and do a cool episode? Yeah, they call it stunt casting, and it's usually done for sweeps week or whenever whenever the numbers are going to be really looked at. Because the more people are watching the show, the more you can charge for your commercials. So sweeps week is when the Nelson people are actually counting how many people are watching the show. So they try to bump the numbers for that, and they often will do a stunt. They'll cast somebody that the audience might also like, and so people will tune in. They try to team them up, and I think that's why you know, that's why uh, Charisma and I were uh, husband and wife in that. But I, I I discovered that Charisma Carpenter is a really nice person <laughs> filming that. I had no clue until then because Charisma is a really good actor, and she convinced me that she was like her character on Buffy. <laughs> and I'm like a punk rocker, and so that cheerleader was of no interest to me at all. I would avoid her. I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to get in a fight. I don't want to like put her down and get in trouble. I'm just going to steer clear of that cheerleader, man. No, no, thank you. And plus, whenever we did have a scene together, which we didn't often have, but whenever we did have a scene, she was running away from me. So, right. so our chairs were always on like to the opposite side of the soundstage. <laughs> so it wasn't that hard to avoid her. But I remember filming with her up in Vancouver doing Supernatural, and we were both talking about our kids, and I finally just went, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I've been judging you so harshly. You fooled me. You're such a good actor. You're actually a nice person. She's like, yeah, I I wondered why we never got to know each other. (laughs) Spike was terrified of Cordelia. (laughs) Well, I was terrified of what I would do in the face of Cordelia, because I'm a subversive person. And the popular kids were not my favorite people in high school. And we used to do, like, okay, this is funny. So in high school, my parents used to take off almost every weekend doing something together. My mom and my stepdad would go off and do something together and leave me the house. And I would throw a massive party. And because I had really good friends, they would all show up Sunday morning and help me clean and repair the house. So that when my parents came home in the late afternoon or early evening on Sunday, the house looked spectacular, probably cleaner <laughs> than when they left. And they probably knew something was up, but like nothing, no problems were going on. And my neighbors were cool enough not to rat me out. And so I had, I finally had some social cred in high school because I had the big party people wanted to come to. But we used to actively try to mess up the football player. If a football player came to the party, we try to get him just smashed drunk <laughs> so that he'd be hung over and lose the game. Or we would get like a pretty girl that we knew to hit on him and then and wait till all the other girls were taken and then just dump him flat at the end of the party and just ruin his self-esteem. <laughs> so that the whole goal was to get our football team to lose. <laughs> so I have like a little nasty streak around that. So I, I, I knew that about myself and I was like, you know, you're in a professional situation. You don't want to, don't get tempted to, to be mean to Cordelia, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I'm so glad I did because she was actually a nice person. I would, that would have been horrible to do that. When you look back on your career, which role would you say has been the most challenging? What, 
one which one have you lost sleep over spike when you do a normal episode of television you pretty much know what you're going to be asked to do from then on that's why a lot of tv is not quite as interesting as buffy when you do a movie you can decide whether or not you want to put yourself through that or experience that or share that with the audience so you can say no mm-hmm. you know like with a tv show you're in for seven years you're gonna have to do whatever they want but it's always the same thing anyway so it's kind of safe but with buffy you never knew you were in there for seven years you had to do whatever they asked and you never knew what it was going to be week to week. It got to a point where they were asking me to do things that I was very uncomfortable with, and I was having to dredge up things in myself to play those scenes that were very painful, and it was getting too intense. And it, you know, it got to a point where I was afraid to read the next script. It sent me into a depression, actually. I had to get therapy, which, you know, I got a good therapist and it worked, so which is one of the reasons I'm so happy now. So it all worked out great, you know, but at the time, it was really scary and uncomfortable. I'm probably, because of that, very proud of, of what I did on Buffy. As, as an artist, and I guess as a human being, you know, I don't learn things when I'm comfortable. I, I only really learn when it's uncomfortable. So, uh, and especially in art, you don't want to remain comfortable for too long. You know, like Jack, Jack White has a great thing about this, the White Stripes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, he says when he's doing solo, you know, he's got to like play guitar and then jump over and play a little bit of keyboard when it's just him. And he will put the keyboard too far from the mic so he doesn't know if he's going to be able to make it and, and do the cue because he wants to make it uncomfortable because right. he knows that that's when the brain starts really firing. That's when magic happens. Um, exactly. You know, like that kicks ass. So, so, yeah, that was by far the most challenging. There has been a lot of, a lot of plays and a lot of stuff that has challenged me but nothing like that that almost broke me (laughs) wow well james is there anything in the pipeline that you can tell us about without getting in trouble nope (laughs) um there's stuff Uh, but i've gotten in trouble so many times Uh, i have finally learned that that when i when i'm involved more often than not the people in charge of a project are, are wanting to use my involvement with in their own plan you know, right. they, want to, they want to announce it in their own time. So I've, I've screwed up enough to just keep my damn mouth shut. <laughs> I hear that a lot. Yeah. It's, the safe, it's the safe route to take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, it's fun. It's right. fun. You're good at interviewing. All right, you have a good have day. Have a good one, brother. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.